This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them to the book of Judges, chapter 4. I showed you a chart last week that summarizes the entire book of Judges. Here it is again. Judges is cyclical. History repeats itself, but Israel's story is a downward spiral. As things repeat, they get worse. And that's not just Israel's story. That is our story. That's humanity's story. But Judges isn't just about the spiritual degeneracy of Israel. It's also about God's unrelenting grace. God never throws in the towel on his people. As you continue to take that chart in, it would be helpful to define the word judge because the way in which we use it in the 21st century is not the way it was used in this book that bears its name. The word judge more literally means a deliverer, a rescuer, a savior. They would save their people from their enemies and God would use them as catalysts for spiritual renewal in the land. Today we're going to reflect on Judges 4 and a little bit on 5. These uh, these chapters are nearly unique. As far as I'm aware in the Old Testament, the only other place that has a parallel like this is in Exodus 14 and 15. Uh, And it's parallel in this sense. Both chapters, both chapter 4 and chapter 5, record the same event. Chapter 4 records the event using prose. Chapter 5 records the same event using poetry. So chapter 4 records the story by telling the story. Chapter 5 records the same story through poetry. Judges (laughs) Judges 4 is a very well written story. So we're going to go through this a little differently than you might be used to. Uh, We're going to just work through our way through the story. I'm going to offer a brief commentary on it here and there, and then we're going to circle back through it again, and we'll look for points of application. Okay? Uh, There are a lot of names in this story, so I will try to help you keep the cast of characters together as we put the whole whole thing together. Verse 1, chapter 4. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. This becomes par for the course. Uh, Israel does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Remember, evil in Judges is not committing heinous crimes per se. More specifically, committing evil is idolatry. We saw that in Judges chapter 2. God says they did evil and they ran after other God. So the root problem for God's people, both Israel and in every day and age of God's people, is idolatry. And idolatry for us isn't worshiping carvings or statues, so it could be. In our context, idolatry takes on more subtle forms. Idolatry is anything or anyone you look to in order to give you a sense of worth and value. If you want to find your idols ask yourself some questions. What do you fantasize about? What do you obsess over? 
What are you terrified of losing? What do you spend way too much time doing? In times of silence, where does your mind naturally gravitate? What do you put your trust in when life is scary? What do you demonize? When you demonize something, it typically means you're idolizing its counterpart. When you demonize something, it typically means you're idolizing its counterpart. So Israel had done evil in the eyes of the Lord by committing idolatry. Verse 2, so the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based in Herosheth Hagogim, because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron, had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Okay, so key to following the story, key to following any story is keeping the character straight. We've got Jabin, he's the Canaanite king. He is an offstage, shadowy character. He never makes a, a personal appearance in the story. He's an offstage, shadowy character. Sisera is Jabin's onstage military general. Sisera is a barbaric brute that has made life miserable for Israel for 20 years. Now this, these verses are recording God's way of dealing with his people and their idolatry. He gives them over completely to it. Only by experiencing the pain of their choices can they be delivered from the grand Canaanite illusion. In other words, they need to get burned in order to be able to see idolatry as the enemy. This repeated fall into idolatry is something old. While tragic, there's nothing new to see here. Verse 4, however, does offer something new. Verse 4, now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lipidoth, was leading Israel at that time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. Normally, at this juncture in the story of Judges, God's, after God's people cry out for help, God raises up a deliverer, a judge, to rescue them and put things right once again. That's how we're to read the stories of the first three deliverers, Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar. But here, we have something new. We don't have God raising up a male deliverer. Instead, we're introduced to a female prophet named Deborah. So the way we need to read this story is to see Deborah serving as the, in the counterpart role to Jabin. Jabin is king in Canaan. Deborah, the leader of Israel. This is very unexpected. Deborah, serving as Israel's leader, would have certainly drawn the mocking derision of Jabin and Sisera. Verse 6. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, Go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them out to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the Kishon River and give him into your hands. Now we're introduced to a fourth character. We've got Barak coming on the scene. Must have been some sort of leader in Israel with some kind of military experience, but he's no military warrior like Sisera. Deborah says that she is going to lead Sisera into a trap. 
Verse 8, Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah. But because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh. There Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now there's a lot happening here in this paragraph. Upon first blush, it may look like Barak is weak, hesitant, and the strong-willed Deborah is reassuring Barak that everything will be okay. I don't think that's what's happening here. I don't think we should read this as a strong female leader reassuring a skittish man. What's happening here is more virtuous than that. Barak is recognizing Deborah as a godly woman who speaks God's words. She is a prophet. Since that's true, why wouldn't he want her alongside him? This is not cowardice. It's faith. And it makes sense then why Barak would be mentioned in Hebrews 11, verse 32, the Hall of Faith passage. Barak is held up alongside the likes of Abraham, Moses, David. This is not cowardice. This is faith. This is Barak's humble confession of his own inadequacy combined with a sure confidence in the grace of God, in this case, through God's mouthpiece, Deborah. Now, we were greeted with something unexpected in verse 4. When you look back up into verse 4, Deborah appears in the place of a male deliverer. In verse 9, we're also greeted with something equally unexpected when she tells Barak, God will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Barak is leading the troops into battle, but the commander of the Canaanite military won't be his for the taking. Instead, Sisera will be delivered into the hands of a woman. Okay, let's sum up. Who are the characters so far? You've got Jabin, king of Canaan, Sisera, the Canaanite military general, Deborah, a prophet and Israel's leader. We've got Barak, Israel's amateur military leader. Verse 11, now Haber, <laughs> the Kenite, had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Za'ananim near Kadesh. Now who's this cat? Okay, we've got another one, Haber. He appears out of nowhere. When you're watching a movie, when you're watching a flick, and you're maybe a third of the way through it, half of the way through it, and you've got a new face that shows up, a new character that shows up and starts talking a lot. I'm not talking about one of those characters that appears in the background. I'm talking about one of those that starts talking. What do you do? You make a mental note of it, right? Ah, especially if it's a mystery. You make a mental note of it. Maybe this is the guy. Maybe this is the gal. That's what you have to do with verse 11. It's foreshadowing. He comes out of left field, but it's foreshadowing. Store that name away, Haber the Kenite. Verse 12, when they, when they told Sisera that Barak son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Herosheth Hagawim to the Kishon River all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. The, the most natural reading of the text would indicate Haber, the Kenite, is Sisera's informant. Okay? 
Verse 12, when they told Sisera, the most natural reading is to see Heber as Sisera's informant. He told Sisera where Barak and his 10,000 men were located. In response, Sisera mobilizes his 900 chariots and all his fighting men to engage the battle. Verse 14, then Deborah said to Barak, go, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword, and Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Verse 16, Barak pushed, pursued the chariots and army as far as Herosheth Hagoim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Okay, so Sisera and his army, 900 chariots, all his fighting men, they were obliterated. And notice the text says, the Lord routed Sisera. This is not Barak. The Lord routed Sisera. There is no mistake who fights the battles and who gets credit with the victory. None. Verse 17, Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazer, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Okay, verse 11 was a foreshadowing verse. I mentioned that earlier. Now we know a little bit more about why that's included. Now, Sisera in this verse is portrayed as a coward. In the ancient Near East, the military general never flees on foot. It's a fight to the death. But once he saw the route was on, he hightailed it out of there. And he comes to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, who was Sisera's informant. Sisera thinks he's in the company of allies. Jael's husband was, after all, his informant and an ally of King Jabin. But is he in the company of allies? Verse 18, Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come, my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent, and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Please give me some water. So she opened a skin of milk gave him a drink, and covered him up. Stand in the doorway of the tent, he told her. If someone comes by and asks you, is anyone there, say no. Do you sense skullduggery afoot? Verse 21. But Jael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhaustive. She drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Who would have seen that coming? My goodness. Now, on some level, Jael would have been seen as an enemy of Israel, right? It was her husband, Haber, who had the alliance with Jabin. It was her husband, Heber, who, who was Sisera's chief informant. Of all people, <laughs> to defeat the barbaric brute, nobody in Vegas had put their money on it being Jael. And now, Deborah's prediction back in verse 4 becomes even more ironic. Remember? She told Barak, God would deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now, when you're reading the story, 
up in verse 4, you assume it's going to be Deborah because she's the only woman that's been mentioned. But it's not Deborah. It's Jael. There's one more irony to be ironed out. Verse 7, Deborah told Barak that Sisera would be delivered into his hands. This hasn't happened yet. Verse 22, just then Barak came by in pursuit of Sisera, and Jael went out to meet him. Come, she said, I will show you the man you're looking for. So he went in with her, and there lay Sisera with the tent peg through his temple dead. On that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, before the Israelites. And the hand of the Israelites pressed harder and harder against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they destroyed him. So there you go. You've got a dual deliverance. Delivered into the hands of a woman, delivered into the hands of Barak. It's a remarkable story. Uh, let's draw out some applications from it. Okay? Let's draw out some applications of it. Number one, God is willing to hand us over to our idolatry. God is willing to hand us over to our idolatry. This is a theme so consistent throughout the book of Judges, uh, it's difficult to just brush it aside. Only by experiencing the pain of our choices can we be delivered from the grand Canaanite illusion. God will let his people get burned so they will learn idolatry can't deliver on what we think it promises. In other words, sometimes God's way with us is to give us what our hearts want the most so we can experience the emptiness, the deep dissatisfaction, and the brokenness that results from craving that thing. Now keep in mind all the way through this that God, God is dealing with Israel in love. This is where we in the 21st century, I think, need to expand our definition of what we think love is. God is love in letting them get burned so they can feel the pain of their sinful choices. God is demonstrating love. I think this has tremendous application to how we deal with the wayward child, the wayward spouse, the wayward sibling in our lives. One father tells of his prodigal daughter who was on the run, figuratively speaking. She would not keep any agreement that the family had made to curb her hostile behavior towards her family. He said this, quote, eventually I had to realize that my vision for love was too small. It was confined to what I could control. If my daughter stayed home, my wife and I felt less anxious. But for some strange reason, the home had become this humongous stumbling block for her. Eventually, we became convinced that we needed to show her a love courageous enough to impose consequences. So with tears in our eyes, 
we asked her to leave. This family learned that there are times when rugged love includes the need for a hard reset. And sometimes what's needed is a forced exit and a change of environment. This ends up creating space for the prodigal child, the prodigal spouse, the prodigal sibling to make their own choices, to deal with their choices, to live out their worldview. The comfort and security of home ends up buffering prodigals from the consequences of their choices. God's discipline of Israel is precisely this. God's God's long-term redemptive goal is to knock loose the scales from their eyes. In other words, the father in the story realized something critical to moving forward. Allowing his daughter to bear consequences did not deny his love for her, but embodied it. Dan Allender put it this way. He said, in order to repent, prodigals must feel pain. We see that in Jesus' own parable of the prodigal sons in Luke 15. God is willing to hand us over to our idolatry and all the consequences of it. It's not for retributive purposes, but restorative purposes. That's first. Second, God is above under, behind, and in front of all things. We don't have time to do a deep dive into chapter 5, but you'll recall from the introduction, chapter 5 records the same story. It just does so through poetry. In chapter 4, God is mentioned in just four verses, and... In three of those, it's Deborah who's speaking at the time. In chapter 5, God is absolutely everywhere. And chapter 5 is a song. It's a song that Deborah and Barak sing because they see him above and under and behind and in front of all things. What is very interesting about chapter 5 is the way in which it's written, it's looking back. Chapter 4 unfolds as though things are happening as they're recorded. Chapter 5 is clearly a remembrance. Deborah and Barak look back, and here's what they're doing. They are reordering their memories theologically. They are reordering their memories theologically. They aren't just simply remembering what happened, but they search out what God was doing This is an exercise that I would commend to you. Absolutely commend to you. Reorder your memories theologically, not just historically. I'll tell you why. Doing this keeps us from over-honoring ourselves during times of success. And it keeps us from despairing during times of struggle. Part of the key to enjoying rest in this life is to be continually praising the Lord for what he has done. You should be praising God so consistently that if someone came up to you and and asked you, what are you praising God for these days? You would have an answer on the tip of your tongue. 
You wouldn't have to think about it. Make it a practice to reorder your memories theologically, not just historically. Because it will help you see that God is above, under, behind, and in front of all things. And third, God meets out his grace through unexpected people. Contrary to the other deliverers in the book of Judges, there isn't one hero in this story. There are three, and two of them, in the world's eyes, are unexpected because they are women. Jael, and even more so, Deborah, are the human heroes of the story. Now keep in mind what they're accomplishing from God's perspective. Due to their spiritual degeneracy, Israel had been living through oppression, and they cry out to God for help. God has compassion on them and sets in motion this elaborate plan to deliver them. In other words, God is meeting out his grace to his people, and he's using unlikely and unexpected candidates in the world's eyes to do so. God does this again and again and again. People throughout the scriptures are prone to writing people off prematurely. Take Peter and John in Acts chapter 4, the religious elite wrote them off because they were untrained. The church in Ephesus wrote Timothy off because of his youth. There's a lesson for us here. Sometimes, and I know I'm guilty of this as much as anybody, sometimes we write people off as if they will never be a mouthpiece for God or an instrument through which we ourselves are ministered to. We write them off. And we say, there's no way. There's no way that that person's going to be a mouthpiece for God. There's no way that I'm going to be the recipient of God's grace through that person. I'm left only to wonder how many in Israel would have thought Deborah would be the one through whom God would save them from tyranny. And yet that's exactly what he did. Now there may be numerous reasons why we write off people. We all have blind spots. Lurking in the dark areas of our lives are scraps of sexism, racism, or prejudice of some form or another. And those scraps cause us to discount people without even being open to what God might be saying or doing through them. think through this text that God is grabbing our attention. He's saying, don't write anyone off. Don't dismiss them out of hand. On paper, Jael looked like Israel's enemy. But in reality, God says, I used her to be Israel's savior. God meets out his grace through unexpected people. Nowhere do we see this more clearly than in the gospel of Jesus Christ. When you think about a conqueror, what images come to mind? When you think about a mighty champion, what descriptions would you use? When Jesus came into our world, he did not arrive with fanfare. He was born in relative obscurity in a tiny rural village. And as Mary and Joseph cuddled their newborn son, touching and ogling his delicate features as new parents do, 
Who would have thought that this baby would one day be savior and king? It was unexpected. When you think about a profound teacher who possesses wisdom and insight, how many of us think of a 12-year-old boy? And yet Luke tells us Jesus spent time in the temple as a 12-year-old, and as he taught, the people were amazed at his understanding and answers. It was unexpected. When Jesus calls Philip to be one of his disciples, Philip found his buddy Nathaniel, and he said to Nathaniel, we have found the one Moses wrote about, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel replied, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? Nazareth was a small town in the province of Galilee, and it was the object of contempt even among Galileans. Who would have thought the Savior of the world would come from a place that had fallen into disrepute even among its own residents? It was unexpected. And at the center of Christianity lies a cross, a Roman execution device. Who would have thought the creator of the cosmos would procure the salvation of many through a torturous death upon it? It was unexpected. Now what about you? Five years ago, did you expect to be attending a church that makes a big deal about Jesus? What about 10 years ago? 20? 30? Were you ever at a point in your life where you never in a million years thought that you would be a Jesus follower? And now you are. Maybe you remember a time in your life when you thought it would be impossible to be deeply satisfied and contented by following Jesus. Maybe there was a time when you asked, can anything good come from being obsessed with Jesus? Now today, how would you answer that question? Unexpected. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're searching for something, but you're not entirely sure what it is you're searching for. Maybe the answer's simple. Perhaps what you're searching for is something unexpected, or more precisely, someone unexpected. For you, the expected sources of satisfaction have failed you at every point. The relationships have left you feeling empty. The career didn't provide what you thought it would. The money and things didn't make you any happier than you were before. And just being a good person who occasionally attends church hasn't worked out either. Well, maybe what you're looking for needs to be searched for in a place you wouldn't expect. Maybe the route to what you're looking for is an unexpected one. You see, in the world's eyes, Deborah is not what Israel needed to bring about wholeness and peace in the land. In the world's eyes, that's not what Israel needed to bring about restoration. 
But as it turns out, Deborah is exactly what Israel needed. In the world's eyes, Jesus is not what you need to bring about wholeness and peace in your life. But might it be, Jesus is exactly what you need. The object of the world's derision might just be the one you need to make things right. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? When you came to church today, maybe you didn't expect God to speak to you the way he has. That's okay, because as we've seen, he's the God of the unexpected. 2,000 years ago, fishermen and tax collectors didn't expect Jesus to beckon them to follow him, but Jesus called them to it, they responded, and now here we all are part of the Jesus movement that began two millennia ago. Now today, Jesus is calling you to take him into your life, not as an object of contempt, but as your master, your king, your savior. Respond. Respond in faith. Follow him. Relish him as savior. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for your word to us. It's so rich, it's nourishing. The scriptures are deep waters that prove refreshing and useful to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us. They were given for our encouragement. We are encouraged by this story, which at its peak shows us that you are the God of the unexpected. What the world labels foolish, you use to save those who believe. For many in our world today, your son Jesus is an object of contempt, but to us, God, he is the object of our praise. And we gladly offer that to him now for all he is and all he has done. Amen.